This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Miyuki Okiranta. Across Radio National this week, we're highlighting critical moments in the last 20 years that changed the course of Australia's history. On Earshot, we're celebrating the 2017 legislation of same-sex marriage with a story born out of love. Part two of Four Parents, Two Gabies, a gay family story with a twist. If you missed part one, here's a short recap. Gay couples John and Charlie and Ruth and Betty met just over 20 years ago and decided to start a family together. At the time, they were living in two separate houses and intended to stay doing so. The following year, in 1998, baby Jake arrived and the new family of five decided to change their living arrangements. They moved from their separate households in inner Sydney to share a large country property on the outskirts of Canberra. And there, baby number two, Alice, was conceived. But problems soon surfaced. Ros Blewett has been following their story and caught up again with the family, five years after they first became parents. Chapter 5. Five parents, two kids. Uh, who's that coming down Not long after taking the plunge and moving in together, difficulties surfaced in Betty and Ruth's relationship and between the two couples. The family made the painful decision to sell the shared property and move back into separate houses. They reflect on that time three years later. Charlie. Ruth was heartbroken because she loved the property. Betty was very angry, I think. In one exchange, she said, you know, well, do you think it's, this is actually the best thing for the kids? And, and I said, well, I, I think it's much better for the kids to be brought up in two houses where there's harmony. John. But I think there are also tensions between us. Uh, I think particularly between Betty and myself. Birth mum, Ruth. From my understanding of, of Betty, I would say that a lot of the things that broke the relationship down and caused tensions in the group were behaviours that were part of her behaviour prior to meeting them. Unable to resolve the differences, each couple bought their own house, still all in Canberra. And time with Jack was divided equally between the two homes. But it was still tense. During this time, daughter Alice was born. And whereas Charlie was Jack's biological father, John was Alice's. We weren't there for the birth. Uh, we, we found out later, we were called later. By that stage it was so dysfunctional that it just, I mean, certainly it was a pity actually that such a wonderful thing at that time was uh, hurt by this. I think one thing we did actually in all of this, even when we had our tensions between ourselves, we never let that in any way sort of uh, infect or hurt the relationship of the kids with the other parents. Sing really loud about that. Yes, sir, that's my baby. We had this agreement from the start that we weren't going to treat it like a custodial relationship. Mommy. It was going to be 50-50 going on, and that was the foundation of everything. Yes, sir, that's my baby. Yes, sir, I don't mean baby. Yes, sir, that's my baby. I think after about six months, the girls invited us over for a meal 
and that was kind of the start of the healing thing. And, and so we thought, well, this is what it'll be like. It'll be a bit sort of like it was back when we were in Sydney, where they're sort of nearby neighbourhoods, you know, two different houses, that sort of thing. Ruth and Betty's relationship difficulties resurfaced, and as an escape, Ruth would often pop by to visit the boys when they had the children. And mummy, mummy, mummy. Ruth would come around a couple of times a week, and uh, that was nice actually, just chat, and we really enjoyed that. So Ruth would come around and spend time. Uh, then one day she said, "Can I move in?" <laughs> so, well, <laughs> So that was a bit of a surprise, especially that they just bought a place. I said to Ruth, well, there's a yes and no answer here. Yes, ma'am. We've decided no, ma'am. We won't hide it. Yes, ma'am. You're invited now. I think I probably overreacted a bit in the sense that I want, I was very, very firm and very direct in saying, yes, you can, but there are some conditions. I ended up leaving... Betty all together and uh, moved back in with the boys. That's been really good. That's a really good thing for me. Um, it's a really right decision. It was really just, we want to live together, have a very relaxed and enjoyable life and not have too many rules actually governing either time with the kids or you spent half an hour with the kids or it's my half an hour now or you haven't spent half an hour with the kids, I've done half an hour or anything like that. Just didn't want that aspect of it. And she was very, and she said, yes, I don't want that either. And so she moved in. And I think it was actually very rough for her because it was a very difficult decision. Daddy, Daddy, and Mummy. Thank you. Come on. Um, oh. Here you go, what do you want? Mummy. You want Mummy? Yeah. Oh, well, just. <clears throat> I think I just. Just go. Just go. So Charlie and John's house, now with three parents, became the main residence. Betty, known to the children as Nan, saw them every Wednesday and every second Sunday. As I say now, when we talk about ourselves, we are a family. And I should say, Betty also has her, her relationship with the children, which we respect and, and support and do whatever we can to nurture. Yeah, just go and get dressed. Clean your teeth, put your shoes on, and then come back and And Betty's new partner, Drew, liked teaching the children woodwork skills. The fact that she uh, hitched up with a man rather than a woman, I think that surprised us all. And I think in our minds we wanted to check that he was good with the kids. And so we, I mean, we have to trust Betty's judgement on that. She loves the kids enormously. And then we also just kind of saw what sort of person he was and how he interacted with the kids, and uh, it was fine. In fact, the kids really like him because he does carpenting. Jake, you did have a bath, actually. We regard ourselves as a family, which is quite hard to explain to people sometimes because now they have, it's quite different to these conceptions of two gay men living with two lesbian women, uh, two gays and two lesbians. It's, hey, it's two men and a woman. <laughs> and what's going on here? You know, sometimes you explain it to people. And do you all sleep together? You know, that sort of, uh, people actually ask that. Okay, before you do that, just come over here. Uh, Jack's done sleepovers with other kids and other kids, a number of other kids have done sleepovers here. And there's nothing from the parents at all. And they all know. Everyone on our street knows. We're, we're the gay couple and lesbian with kids. Everyone on the street knows. 
people see what you're doing and they can see how you behave. And we're just like everyone else with the kids. You know, we take our kids bike riding around the block, they see that. I mean, we take them out in the car, we're doing activities. They see that. It's just like a... Yeah, it's like a normal... It's just like a completely normal family. It's just... In fact, one of the bizarre things over the years is being becoming normal, becoming socially normal. Uh, it is just a... It's still, to me, is a bizarre thing. And what colour is Puff? Purple. Purple. And what's your favourite colour? Purple too. That's right. What colour is our car? Purple too. That's right. What colour were the clothes you wore today? Purple too. That's right. Exactly right. It was definitely a full house again. Mum, Dad, Papa, Baby Alice, outside dogs, a few items of antique furniture, and wherever Jack was, there was music. Wake up! Wake up, you sleepy little head. Get, get up, get out of bed, cheer up. The family of five lived together for nearly seven years. But when Jack was ten and Alice seven, Ruth decided she needed to move away. And it was this change of living arrangements that brought with it the family's most challenging period yet. Chapter 6, 15 years later. Alice's 17th birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Alice. Happy birthday to you. Fast forward to 2018. Betty and Drew have moved to Darwin. And John, Charlie, Ruth and her new partner and Jake are celebrating Alice's birthday. But it hasn't always been an easy road. We love you. Hip hip hooray. Jake has just turned 20. People say, you know, isn't it weird having three parents? And it's quite hard to answer because obviously to me, I've never really experienced anything else. This is just what my family is. All over <laughs> Jake's. There we are. He's a little taste of your sister. Alice's perspective is a little different from Jake's. As she was a baby when her mum Ruth separated from Betty. And Betty, known to her as Nan, teamed up with Drew. From as young as I can remember, they were four main adults in my life. Uh, Betty, Mum, Dad and Papa, and Drew. Five, I guess. They're all different in their own way, but, like, I love spending time with all of them. My dad's uh, Charlie and my papa's John, and they're my father's. I don't view one of them over the other one, but like with Nan and Mama, like Mum was always introduces my mom, and because Nan wasn't as around as much, Nan's family well and truly. My mum's my mum. Alice was seven when her mum Ruth moved out of John and Charlie's house, and one of the issues at the time was dogs. Should there be dogs, and if so, inside or outside? Ruth. We're human, we have differences and sometimes we resolve them really well, other times we struggle a bit more with how to resolve them. I was only working part-time then to um, look after the kids some of the time 
I think eventually I needed my own space. I live quite differently to the way they live. You know, I'm much more a horse riding, outdoor camping, go and play polo cross, these sort of activities. You know, there's quite a different sort of way of living. And they're much more urban, if you like, have interest in acting and going out for dinner and going to some of the plays. There's a different emphasis. I really found having dogs was really important to me and I really wanted my kids to have dogs. And at the time, the men didn't want dogs in the house. Interestingly, the hot topics of discussion between the couples 20 years ago were education, antique furniture and dogs. So I was pretty surprised when I called in to see John and Charlie. <laughs> yep, we've got two. We are in the, uh, the same house as 15 years ago, uh, a little bit more renovated, a little bit less pink. And despite the dogs, it was also less chaotic. Ten years ago, when Ruth moved out, the family went through one of its biggest upheavals. It was the first time the word custody surfaced. John. When we look back now, again with Jack, 20 years, and uh, Alice, 17, we've had these big cycles. And this one was, um, for me, it was deep turmoil. And when we went through it, we went through mediation, specifically to avoid going to court or a census. You know, we've talked about this custody thing, but a way that we could find a way to interact ourselves to get through what was, for me, a very difficult situation. The men and Ruth eventually agreed to split time with the children 50-50 which meant Ruth's week also had to incorporate Betty's days. Here's Ruth. It was a difficult time. I'd had the kids all the time because we're all living together. And so we moved to me having them every second week. And I found that extraordinarily difficult. I, I, um, I understood it but I would cry every week and they left. So actually, for about a year, I went away. Every second weekend, I'd go away. It wasn't in the house. Because if I was away, I didn't have an expectation that the kids had to be there. And so that was how I coped with it. I just found it heartbreaking. But we did do some mediation. It was just around resolving how we were going to move into the future and growing to accept that you only had the kids at half-time. Yeah, not long after Ruth moved out, the kids both were talking about wanting to have a dog here. I had dogs when I was a kid. I grew up with lots of different dogs. I think when the kids weren't here all the time, frankly, I needed the company as well. And so we got one, and he really was the kind of dog who just needed company. So we got a second one. Uh, so it worked out very well. I think, frankly, in retrospect, I would have done things differently, you know, with the girls around the dogs. So it's, um, you, you live and learn. It was also pretty difficult for the kids. Jake was 10. Yeah, I remember when they split up as well. It was very hard. Mum, yeah, mum moved out. I think for me, the main reason for grief at the time was it kind of felt like the uh, dream of having, I guess, one family in one house had kind of shattered. And um, I think a lot of kids go through that with um, any other kind of parental split. So obviously that's quite difficult and a bit of a challenge for a kid, especially when you're not entirely emotionally developed. It can be pretty hard. There were now three houses, two gay dads, 
a single mum and a straight couple. So I'd be with Betty and Drew every Wednesday and I really liked that. When the um, week on, week off roster started becoming a thing, I could just, you know, every Wednesday it was always guaranteed that I would be there. It was one of the best days of the week, I remember. We used to build, like, go-karts and we built a treehouse there with Drew. Co-building, I don't know if I actually really did much work at all, but it was a great memory. It was lots of fun as a kid, so always kind of viewed them as, I guess, kind of a grandparent-like figure. So it was really good just having somewhere to go and um, just to be able to sort of go and unwind and relax. And it was pretty stressful at times, especially for Ruth. It basically turned me into a single parent for the week that they were living with me, which, you know, two young kids and a high-level job, that was very demanding. Betty and her new partner, they were fantastically supportive through that, helped me with a new rental place, getting that set up and furniture and bringing over food the first few nights and coming around and mowing the lawn and just really, really supportive. I think that just really reinforced for me that what I have is a long-term family relationship. There's love there. Charlie. I was a little bit, I guess, unsettled by the fact that Ruth would move as frequently as she did, um, and I wasn't sure why that that was going on, whether it was just she didn't like the place or, or rents were um, out of bridge. We, we weren't talking about that sort of thing. The pitfalls of securing long-term rental accommodation were eventually sold for Ruth. About five years later, Betty decided to uh, build an extension on the original property we'd bought together as a self-contained duplex accommodation. So myself and the kids could move into that. Yeah, but it was like two houses separate. Mum moved into the old part of the house and we moved in there with them. I guess it's just a extended family, like having your aunt and uncle next door. And that was fantastic, it was so flexible. You know, if somebody wanted to go out or one kid wanted something and another kid wanted to go in the opposite direction or whatever, it just really worked. When Betty did what she did with the house there and Ruth moved back there, I think that, again, gave them two solid bases, lasting homes, and that's been really good for them, I think. The original plan was for the fathers to be the children's primary carers, but this changed over the years as opinions about what was best for them were debated. Ruth. Oh, I always knew I'd absolutely love the kids. They're just everything. I also have a career that requires me to travel. And so the kids and the career were really not very compatible. So I ended up only working part-time until the kids went to school. I really didn't want them to be in childcare full-time. So trying to get these things to balance and putting the kids first. When I was overseas, I'd call them and they'd ask me where I was. And if I said a city in Australia, they were like, no problem, chat, chat, chat. And if I said I was in Jakarta, they'd burst into tears and cry. And I just had to stop doing it. I eventually took some time off from working to spend a few years having much more time with the kids when they're in their adolescence, early adolescent years. So that's obviously had an impact on my career, but I'm absolutely, uh, you know, I'll choose the kids first every time. I think probably a lot of mothers do. 
And for Ruth, this meant she was also there for the questions when they started coming up. The kids are very fortunate that they live, you know, where we live, in a community of people where there's a quite a high degree of acceptance. I think it would still be quite difficult, you know, for instance, if I wanted to take them to live in the country environments that I grew up in. And I think most of what I saw from the kids was um, outrage if anybody dared say that there was a problem, <laughs> which is kind of normal because, of course, you know, kids adore their... Um, well, they adore each other and they love their parents. And so, of course, they're protective in that regard. I can remember once Jack being upset because somebody at school had had a go at him. Jack came home from school and started putting up an I hate X person Facebook page. And I saw it and said, what are you doing? Take that down. And uh, what's happened? And he said, oh, well, he said that um, gay was catching in Jack's family. That really was, the, I think, the first time Jack had been insulted and he resented it. And he came home and, and he retaliated in his own unique way. So I called this kid's parents and said, this is what's happened. And his father was really quite funny. He said, oh, you're gay. And I was like, yeah. Who do you think that other guy who comes to the rugby matches with me every Sunday, every Saturday morning is? And they just hadn't twigged. This kid's parents hadn't twigged, but the son had. The problem went away. But that's the only time in either of their lives that I've ever been aware that there was any resentment or... or any, any stirring or being made fun of. And the odd occasions that it did happen, Jake's spirited personality usually saw him through and sometimes got him into a bit of strife. I like to say that I was always the one who the rules were made around, because I always was testing my parents, where I was pretty wild and reckless. Yeah, Alice, she's got it easy compared to me, I like to say, but... <laughs> you know, one of the things that is quite noticeable when you have so many people involved is it does take a lot of negotiation. There is a lot of discussion. And education was one of those topics. When Jack wanted to go to a private school, it wasn't either of us driving that discussion, it was him. And I think because it was him, that's why it was acceded to. He said, I need more order and control around what I do, and I don't have it at my local high school. They were delighted. He's a kid who says he, he wants structure. Truth is, when he got it, he didn't like it. <laughs> So there's a bit of turmoil. Well, Jack never really wanted to do homework. <laughs> no, definitely not. I think I was, yeah, the definitely the wild child of the house. So I'm very passionate, kind of stubborn sometimes as well. Can get quite determined and headstrong. <laughs> he drove his own outcome for um, Year 12 and not always consistently the best choices. I'm doing a science diploma because unfortunately I didn't finish with an ATAR, which is probably my biggest regret from high school. But uh, I've mainly recently been doing a lot of electronic music production, which I'm finding really fun. There's just elements to it that you wouldn't ever think about unless you knew exactly what they were. So it just really helps you to construct the whole track. And it's so interesting. Jack's creativity has been nurtured by his parents and came in handy two years ago at his father's wedding in America. 
he helped design a very special tea towel for the occasion. So it says, Alice and Jack are pleased to announce at last John and Charlie are getting married. Please join us Friday, Sunday 15th, 2016, 4pm, Palaku Gardens in Hawaii. They kind of jumped the gun in Australia and had to go over to the US and do it there. So, yeah, look, the, the wedding was great. And the kids walked us down the aisle and it was just fantastic. Very, very teary for me. Uh, I'm, I'm the teary one. And we had the, uh, the fireworks at 7.30 that night right behind us while we had our dinner. It was beautiful. And the following year, with Australia's gay marriage plebiscite announced, Jake, for the first time, posted a bold personal statement on social media. Uh, so it's received 606 likes on Facebook, which isn't massive, but I like to think that it's enough to be a little ripple in the water. It says, Hey guys, I know I'm not usually one to post like this to Facebook, but if you've got a minute, please read. I was born in 1998 in a women's hospital in Randwick, Sydney. Growing up, the one thing I always knew was how much I was loved and treasured by my family. What I would later realise is that not everyone had a family quite like mine. As opposed to nearly everyone else having just a mum and a dad, I've always had two loving fathers and a caring gentle mother, all of whom I respect and love as parents and outstanding people. My two fathers have been in a relationship for over 30 years now and have been legally wed in the United States. This was a touching and eternally memorable moment for me. Witnessing the power of love in such a beautiful wedding ceremony surrounded by teary-eyed members of both sides of the family. While this was an absolute blessing, the hardest part for me is seeing the outcry and backlash against that very same marriage here. I've known nothing but love from them and have led a normal if not very privileged life with them looking over me. Attached is a picture of my family in Paris, France, taken on a vacation in 2008. You'll see here my sister and two fathers alongside me outside the Eiffel Tower, one of many memories I cherish. I know how I'll be voting. May love win, Jake. Many thanks to the family. John... We could have had very different lives. But i got to say that this one has just enriched me so much. And I just uh, absolutely no regrets. Charlie. It'll be interesting to see in another 20 years where they end up. You know, if they're still here or if they're somewhere else or if they're in another country. Uh, you never know. So we'll have to follow them around the world. <laughs> Ruth. It's been fantastic and for me, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life and we're all going to be there for the kids forever. <laughs> Madeline Alice. There's never a question of, did they actually want me in the world? And Jake Spink. You know, they say, if one parent won't give you money for something, another one will. If you've got three, it's a lot easier. <laughs> to be honest, I wouldn't have changed a thing. Hey, you lot! Sit <laughs> down. Yep, we've got two. And that wraps Four Parents, Two Gabies. If you missed part one, or you want to hear the whole thing again, check out the Earshot website. Or better yet, sign up for the podcast and never miss a program. And a little update on the family. Ruth accepted her first six-month posting overseas. Alice moved in with her dad's full-time, 
as she completed her final years of school, while big brother Jake took over Betty and Ruth's old home, then headed to uni in Melbourne. Don't worry, we're going to catch up with them again in another five years' time. Four Parents, Two Gabies was produced by Ros Blewett. The sound design was by Russell Stapleton. And hey, before you go, I want to tip you off to a new Radio National pod that's just dropped. Stuff the British Stole. Throughout its reign, the British Empire stole a lot of stuff, from pieces of art to dead people's heads. Today, those objects are housed in institutions across the UK and the world, and they usually come with polite plaques. Stuff the British Stole is a series about the not-so-polite history behind those objects. Mark Fennell from Download This Show is our guide. Here's a taste. Dear visitors, starting in two minutes' time, there will be a free... All right. All right. <clears throat> I am recording this on my phone in a museum. Oh, God, security, look at me. My name is Mark Fennell, and I'm from Australia. Also, I'm from... India and Singapore and Ireland. Actually, I'm from a lot of places. Places where Britain kind of stole stuff. It's shameless. It's so blatant. And for the last year, I've been on a very strange mission. What happened here 250 years ago? So I realised this is a quagmire. That is an insult. Well, just get over it. People just burst out laughing. Whoa, you know, like, yeah, that that was a good time. Time. You see, sitting in museums and galleries like this across the UK are certain objects, objects that were taken in the days of the British Empire. I've been tracking down exactly how it is they ended up here. And let me tell you... He was in desperate trouble. It is wild. Dramatic and very bloody. You look them in the eyes and it's tears. You are weak. There's no way to stop it. The tiger's roaring, the man screaming. We had police escorts, we had cars in front of us. Thousands of people are murdered. It was really bizarre. The savagery. We were left here to die. They are conquerors and victims. And those stories are going to take you on a smuggling operation to Nigeria. They were stolen, they were looted. You don't think that's enough? You go ahead and you pillage. There was hand-to-hand fighting in the streets. Into a war in India. I mean, if somebody literally dug your father's grave up, once a king is vanquished and his entire family has to suffer. To China? This is your fate. Things to do when you're an emperor and you're bored and you've already conquered Tibet a couple of times. Because there is a mystery, they actually belong to all of us. You'll get tattoos in New Zealand. You feel different, there's no doubt about it. And all the way back to Australia just surrounded in flames. He would often fire a gun and deal with the consequences. You know, I was just being shot. Shot, shot. To the British people listening, please don't feel personally attacked by this. Thank you for the railways and the legal system and the smallpox and the greatest karaoke song of all time, Wonderwall. We're cool, but there is this whole other side to history. This was one of the great crimes of the 19th century. People are fainting in horror at the sight of it. You could see the the depth of of hatred. You see, these objects may be old, but they tell us about today. And I think it was that that evening when I actually opened up that letter and it was just, can you please help us? It appeared to be an injustice. From laws to borders to wars. Here, Your Highness, we're so happy to have gone to war to protect your good name as the world's largest narco baron. I mean, come on. (laughs) And all of it has shaped who we all are today. 
Knowing where you come from gives you confidence as to what you do and who you are as a person. We're here 250 years later still. The simple truth is that the impact of the British Empire, the, the colonialism, it was messy. It's the marker of a time in history. And that's what I'm going to try and make sense of. How we ended up with our world told through a shield, a mask, a spear, just some stuff that the British stole. The first step is already out. So look for Stuff the British Stole on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Yuki Okiranta. Till next time, we're within earshot. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.